0: If you want to follow in the Pew Bible, the first reading is Psalm 27 on page 493 in your Pew Bible. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil sayers assail me, evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, My adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And the reading from the Gospel of Mark will be on page, starts on page 921 in your pew Bible. Mark 10, and we read verses 32 Mm -hmm. through 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again. And began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. The word of the Lord.
1: Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight. For you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. This morning I would like to invite you to come along with me on a journey, at least in your imagination. Uh, If it helps you to close your eyes as we go on this journey together, you can do that. Just don't doze off. (laughs) Or to look at the photo that's not a photo, but the image that's on the front of your bulletin. That might help you... uh, Imagine what we're about to do, because we're going to come in beside the disciples as they're following Jesus up that dusty, rocky path leading to Jerusalem and to a cross. I say going up. Notice, whenever the Bible talks about going to Jerusalem, it's always going up to Jerusalem, even though it's traveling south, because uh, Jerusalem is built on a mountain, Mount Zion, and uh, so the elevation is higher, so you're always going up to Jerusalem. We're in the season of Lent. I'm sure you know it is a 40-day season that begins on Ash Wednesday, concludes on Easter morning, begins amid the ashes and concludes with the lilies. One way of looking at it begins during the dark, dreary days of winter and concludes in the brightness and brilliance of the spring on an Easter morning in a garden tomb. In this journey, we identify Jesus both when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness after he was baptized in the Jordan by John. But we also identify with him on this journey because we are among his disciples. This journey commenced up in the north in Caesarea Philippi, Gentile territory, where Jesus had taken his disciples to teach them and to have these very difficult conversations with him. That's where he asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And when Peter confessed that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, he didn't know what he was saying. uh, But he was right. And Jesus then began to teach them. This was the first time he told them of his coming passion. Three times he does this before they get to Jerusalem. Our passage today is the third time. It's called the third passion prediction in the Gospel of Mark. So he was telling his disciples what they should expect when he got to Jerusalem. He would be beaten, he would be flogged, he would be spit upon, he would be tried, he would be executed. And he's preparing them for that reality, not only in his life but also in theirs. Whenever the season of Lent comes around, I have a memory and I have an image that always come to mind for me. The memory is from uh, high school and um, a teacher. Nearly all of us have had that teacher we love to hate before we had her. And then once we had her, we couldn't appreciate her enough because she was tough. We dreaded her when we entered her class. But that teacher for me was uh, Ms. Eunice Hart. She taught sophomore literature and junior English in Canton High School where I went to high school. And we knew about her from a sound reputation before we ever got into her class. And we knew what to to expect in the spring of our sophomore year because she would not only make us read and study Chaucer and his Canterbury Tales, but she would make us memorize the prologue to the Canterbury Tales in Middle English. I suspect that some of you, some after the last service, could recite it as well. Even a younger person knew it, which pleased me because I didn't even know that they studied Chaucer anymore in high school. Literature, But one that operal with the surah suit to the druth of March hath to the root and bothered every vine and swish liqueur of which virtue engendered is the floor. That's how it starts, that prologue. And then Chaucer goes on to say that when spring comes, when the young sun and the gentle showers uh, feed man and nature once again, the days begin to lengthen, which gives us our word Lent. And then it is that people long to go on pilgrimages, says Chaucer. We're on a pilgrimage in Lent. We are following our Savior up that path, that dismal path leading to the ancient city of Jerusalem. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. That's the text on the front of your bulletin. And that's the verse I really want us to look at and reflect upon. Luke had told us in his gospel that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a way of saying he was determined to make it to Jerusalem to finish, to complete the task his father had given to him. So he was singularly focused. And his disciples were following him on the way to Jerusalem. But as we come among the disciples, try to imagine what you would be thinking or feeling or seeing if you were on that journey today. What would it look like and feel like? To get to Jerusalem from Galilee is not a pleasant trip. Galilee is the lovely part of the Holy Land. Galilee uh, is the lake and the trees beside the lake reflected in the placid waters. Galilee, in this time of the year, is just replete with multicolored flowers that prompted Jesus on one occasion to say they excelled Solomon in all of his glory. Up in Banias, or Caesarea Philippi, where the journey commenced, there are trees, there's coolness, it's pleasant. Jerusalem's not pleasant. Judea is not pleasant. And so to get to Jerusalem, you have to turn your back on the loveliness of Galilee and take that long, winding, difficult path that goes down through Judea beside all these big boulders and rocks that look like they were left over from some untidy work of creation. And finally start climbing that hill leading up to the ancient city that was ancient even in Jesus' day. The city that was known for persecuting and killing the prophets, forbidding bare mountains and not knowing what to expect there, at least the disciples, though they had been told. But if you make that journey, Galilee becomes just a faint memory. So imagine yourself walking behind Jesus toward Jerusalem. It's a journey of 80 miles of decreasing beauty probably be like walking from Mount Pleasant to Columbia, something like that. <laughs> Not in a pejorative sense, but uh, that, that would be the distance anyway. But it, it'd be hard to leave, hard to leave the low country, wouldn't it, just to walk up to Columbia? At any rate, uh, they were on the road to Columbia, uh, no, on the road to Jerusalem, um, and this marks a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus, because he'll never be back in Galilee except in his re- resurrected life. So behind him is all the loveliness he's enjoyed. All the success that he's enjoyed. Swelling crowds that hung on every word he spoke. Friends he went on fishing expeditions with. nights spent beneath the Galilean stars. Home and family. Success. That's what Galilee represents. That's only part of Jesus' life and ministry. It's only part of ours, too. There's another side to the Christian life. There's another side to the Christian faith and ministry. And that's the side we would prefer not to consider because that's not the Galilee part of our faith. That's the Jerusalem part of our faith because Jerusalem is symbolic not of success and pleasantness and family and friends and successful work. But Jerusalem is symbolic of loneliness, betrayal by a friend, trumped up charges against you, crucifixion. And death. Loneliness. Jerusalem is all about loneliness and agony. And yet these two locales, if we put them side by side, were part of Jesus' life and they're part of ours. We might call them the terrains of Lent or the terrains of life, really. If we live long enough, we will spend time both in Galilee and in Jerusalem. But Lent forces us to consider the Jerusalem aspect of our faith because we'd rather not think about it, frankly. We would rather just enjoy our time of communion with God on retreat in our Bible studies, present with family and friends, enjoying life. That's part of the Christian life, no doubt. But it's not the whole of it because the Christian life involves obedience and sacrifice and courage and determination to do and to be what you're called to do and to be. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, we read. And those who followed were afraid. These are uncomfortable words. We don't like to read them or consider them. It shouldn't surprise us. The Bible is full of uncomfortable words. The Bible not only talks about joy but sorrow. Not only life but death. Not only blessing, but curse. And the written word, like the living word, remind us that God not only comforts the disturbed, but he disturbs the comfortable. And sometimes Jesus comes to us with his eyes, I mean his hands wide open and welcomes us, welcomes all who are of a childlike spirit, and forgives us and blesses us and leads us on. But there are other times, and this is one of them, when Jesus walks ahead of us up a difficult path, bidding us to follow. And there's something about that walk and that presence that's intimidating and distressing because his faithfulness, his conviction, his commitment shames the puny lives we live and reveals the parsity of our discipleship. You see, so there is a greater distance between us and Jesus than simply the 20 or 30 feet that separate us from the one who leads us, he has a courage and a commitment that often shames us and shatters all of our pretensions to faithfulness and brings us to our knees. It is this Jesus who comes to us in the season of Lent. It is this Jesus who's walking ahead of us toward Jerusalem. And it is this Jesus who reminds us that the Christian life is not all about sunshine and roses and friendship and success, But it's also about sacrifice and suffering, if we're to be serious about it. I wonder if you can picture him walking ahead of you up that road. What do you see? Maybe there's a cross or two on the horizon left over from some previous crucifixion. I imagine the disciples in bands of two or three exchanging frightened glances and talking about what they were going to encounter when they got to Jerusalem. Stumbling forward, troubled, not knowing what to expect. They were amazed, we're told. There's a great deal of awe and wonder surrounding this Galilean carpenter they are following. And it's hard to come to terms with who he was and is and what he did for us on the cross And I think sometimes we as preachers and teachers of the Word try to say too much as if we figured Jesus out or that we ever will. He's beyond us and in front of us. We'll never catch up. We'll try to keep up, but we will never catch up. And we should not give the impression that we fully understand this Jesus we follow because I am convinced that despite the depth of our conviction or the extent of our biblical or theological knowledge or the clarity of our speech or the persuasiveness of our work that we will ever fully catch up to Jesus or fully explain what he did for us at Calvary. What words shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? What words are adequate to describe what Jesus did for you and me at the cross? takes a lot to amaze us, doesn't it? I wonder if we are amazed at this one we are following. It's hard to amaze people like us, Western culture in the 21st century. We've done so much, we've achieved so much, sent men and machines into space and brought them back again. They're robots the size of a grain of sand that can be injected into the body and do repair work. We have smartphones, smarter than the users. If Your phone is like mine. We have smart bombs. I remember when we invaded Iraq, one of the images that stands out in my memory is they showed how they could direct a bomb down an air vent in a bunker with precision because of global positioning satellites and all that kind of thing. And you could sit at a desk and send a bomb the other side of the world down an air shaft. We can transplant human organs. We can do so much. It takes a lot to amaze us. And we are the poorer for it, I think. So how is it with our sense of wonder and awe as we follow this man Jesus to Jerusalem? Are we casual and analytical, blasé, about this journey to a cross? Do we think we figured Jesus out, that modern scholarship has put him into his historical niche? That we understand his teachings now and we can issue them in digest form if we want to? Or do we simply kneel before him as Thomas did and say, My Lord and my God? And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Are you afraid as you contemplate following Jesus to Jerusalem? And what kind of fear was this? There are all kinds of fear. Is it fear simply because of the unknown dangers that lay ahead? Is it fear because Jesus had given such ominous words about his own persecution and death? Fear of going to Jerusalem, that city known for its treatment of the prophets, persecuting them? Was it fear that they would experience the same thing Jesus had said he would encounter? Condemnation and mockery and abuse and death. Well, if it's this kind of fear, we can understand it. There's an appropriate fear in the face of danger. A soldier going into battle doesn't need to be fearless. He just needs to focus his fear so that he can better accomplish his mission. He needs to respect the power of his enemy and to be as cautious as he can. So we don't want fearless soldiers. We want people who channel their fears in the right way. And it makes them more effective. Because fear can release adrenaline in the bloodstream. Fear can make you more effective. A couple of weeks ago, our son, who's been involved in snowboarding for the last nine or ten years, called a young friend of his who had a big competition scheduled for the next morning. And he called him to ask him how he was feeling. And he said, well, he was scared to death and he was nervous as he could be. But the next morning, this kid, 17 years old, went out and won the first gold medal uh, in the Olympics. Red Gerard, who had lived with our son for a couple of years during his training, but he turned his fear, his apprehension, into performance, and he nailed it on his third freestyle event. Third trip down the mountain, anyway. He turned his fear into courage and performance. That's one kind of fear, but there's another kind of fear that more, uh, is, is more akin to cowardice. There's a fear that prevents you from even attempting to do or to be what you're called to do and to be. And we know this kind of fear as we follow Jesus as well. And this is the unhealthy fear. We refuse to follow because we fear that we'll fail. How in the world can we love like Jesus loved or serve like he served or live like he lived? We're destined to fail, are we not? So we don't even try. And yet, Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. The things that I do, you will do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So I can sense that fear because I know that I don't measure up to Jesus. I don't know how you feel about your discipleship, but when I compare my life of faith to Jesus's, I'm shamed. It's so paltry in comparison. And sometimes the image of Jesus walking ahead of me to the cross sends a shudder through my soul or as one hymn writer put it, causes me to tremble. I know that tremble. It's a haunting figure of Jesus walking before us because his life, his courage, his commitment calls into question anything and everything that is phony or shallow or fearful about my own discipleship. And yet, this recurring image of Jesus on the road to Jerusalem is also a source of comfort, strange as it may be, And I'll tell you why. I don't know if you heard the word of hope and encouragement in this verse. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. The good news is that they were still following. In spite of their hesitancy, in spite of their fears, their amazement, they're still on the road with him. They hadn't turned back. They made it to Jerusalem. Sometimes we don't stay with Jesus to the end because of our crippling fears, our paralyzing sins. But this Jesus will always be beyond our reach. And yet he turns around and he beckons us, come on, keep up, stay with me. And it is this Jesus in all the wonder of his being and all the mystery of his passion and death and all the boldness of his commitment who looks at you and me and he says, just come on, follow me. And this is the primary decision of Lent. No, this is really the primary decision of life. Are you willing to follow? Are you willing to say to Jesus, Jesus, wherever it is, beneath the starlit skies of the Galilee's of my life, my times of success, or beneath the threatening clouds of Rome, Or of Jerusalem, rather. And whenever it is, when I'm feeling spiritual and connected to you and uh, connected to other people, or when I'm feeling isolated and alone and don't know where you are and not sure where I am, and however it is, through laughter or tears, pleasure or pain, life or death, whenever, wherever, however, I'm going to follow. And if you make that decision, you will have access to all the resources of divine grace. Let us pray. It would be so nice, Lord, for us to remain forever in Galilee, walking with Jesus along the beach or communing beneath the stars or sharing in prayer and fellowship. But remind us, especially in this season, that Jerusalem is a part of our pilgrimage as it was his. And we have to walk there too. That Jerusalem will be there when our discipleship becomes more demanding than joyful. Jerusalem will be there when we are called to be servants rather than to be served. Jerusalem will be there when our world seems to be crumbling around us and we wonder if you are there in the midst of the rubble. We ask today, O Lord, that you would not provide us with a detour around Jerusalem But rather that you would simply equip us by your grace to follow where our Lord leads us. Trusting that he will provide the strength needed at every time of the journey. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.